The state of data inside most companies is chaotic. It takes time and investment to tame this chaos. When you are a platform provider, you are gathering tons of data from the developers using your platform. These developers building products on your platform need insight into that data to better understand how their application is performing or to troubleshoot it. Most platforms or SaaS application providers find it both difficult and expensive to build customer-facing analytics and data applications into the platforms. In fact, most companies don't know what to do with the data they are gathering and continually postpone future product roadmap features aimed to unlock this data. This data can be a crucial part of the developer experience and can empower your customers. It can save you countless hours of handling support tickets and increase overall stickiness on the platform. Propel is a GraphQL API platform ideal for powering customer-facing analytics use cases, from customer dashboards and analytic APIs to product usage or in-product metrics. Tyler Wells is co-founder and CTO at Propel, and he joins us today. We discuss how the customer-centric experiences at Twilio led his team to the journey they are on today. This episode of Software Engineering Daily is hosted by Sean Falconer. Check the show notes for more information on Sean's work and where to find him. Tyler, welcome to the show. Thanks, Sean. Really appreciate uh, you having me on. Yeah, thanks so much for being here. I know we had some uh, trouble scheduling it. Uh, <laughs> we've uh, that as, such as the the way sometimes in life when uh, you have a couple of busy people, it can be hard to coordinate schedules. But why don't we start with some basics and have you introduce yourself? You know, who are you? You know, what do you do? And how did you get to where you are today? Sure, happy to do that. So I'm Tyler Wells, and I'm the co-founder and CTO of Propel. Uh, Propel's been around for a little over two years. Uh, myself and my co-founders started it after, I see, I spent seven and a half years prior to that at Twilio. Um, so during that seven and a half years, I joined, we were probably under 200 employees. I left, we were probably over 5,000. Uh, I did everything there from starting the uh, video organization, building that out. I opened up uh, one of our first remote offices in Mountain View, California. I opened up an office in Madrid. Um, and then my final year plus there, um, I started the SRE organization um, under um, uh, platform engineering. And so I moved out of the voice and video unit that I'd been there that whole time and then moved over to platform. Uh, prior to that, before Twilio, I'd started another company called Ubix. Um, that one didn't go so well and uh, ended up leaving, obviously, uh, luckily to go to Twilio. And then before that, I spent a bunch of time at Skype. Um, and during my time at Skype, I really got my first uh, real experience of what uh, true scale is. Um, I got to lead and build the Facebook uh, video calling that was powered by Skype. Uh, this goes way back before the, the years of WebRTC. And so we had this plugin uh, that you would have to download and install. Um, the first day we launched was to 13 million people. Um, by the time we got that fully out there, uh, it was in the hundreds of millions of people that have been using it. So um, been in software now for north of 25 years um, and uh, very happy to be here and, and get an opportunity to talk about uh, what we're building at Propel. Awesome. Yeah. And so you were at Twilio, you said from uh, essentially around 200 employees to over 5,000. That must have been yep. an incredible journey. And I'm sure, you know, you mentioned about seeing scale at uh, in in the days at Skype, but you must have saw a massive growth in scale at Twilio during that time as well as some really interesting problems that you had to to uh, to try to figure out how to solve. Yeah, I mean, it was incredible amounts of scale. I mean, I remember joining in, in 2013, and this was a, a vastly different company than anything I'd ever been a part of. 
Um, you know, I was always used to shipping software that people downloaded and installed on their machines. Um, and you sort of got this immediate feedback loop. Um, but at Twilio, you know, you're, you're building this platform and your platform is being consumed by developers um, in all sorts of interesting ways. And growth doesn't happen overnight. But when it does, um, I mean, it can be wildly fantastic. Uh, I think one time we had uh, Justin Bieber uh, tweet out one of our Twilio numbers for something, and it just was was absolute chaos. And so, yeah, so I got to see scale in, in a very different way mm. uh, because now that scale was horizontal. Um, it is across a bunch of, of sort of different dimensions, but um, scale nonetheless. Um, and, and like you said, there were definitely plenty of interesting problems. Um, and we got to do, and from those early days of 2013, a lot of, of growing up that we had to do in order to meet the demands of, of our enterprise customers and, and people that were building on top of us. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it, I feel like uh, even even today, like Toyo is still changing. It, it feels like to me as an outsider anyway, it's you know, transformed a little bit from you know being very much like uh, very developer focused sort of from a messaging standpoint to a little bit more enterprisey, uh, a little bit more sales led, but, but that's kind of just uh, something that I, a pattern that I've kind of noticed in the last couple of years, which is interesting. Yeah. It feels like the, uh, that's sort of the nature of the uh, public company beast, right? Um, you know, everything from the ground up, you know, our, our grassroots were, were developer led and developer focused. Um, you know, Jeff was, is, is a develop was a developer, still is a developer. Um, you know, he would lead, he would do live coding on stage. And so there was always a huge focus on, uh, you know, delivering and ensuring that we are able to uh, you know, wow our developer uh, community and the huge focus on that. But I think as you start to get bigger, um, you know, that has to change somewhat. Um, you're not responsible for public markets. And, and as you start to deal more with the enterprise level and that level of scale, um, you know, things like compliance start to come in. And, and yeah, you, you end up growing up, right? Mm -hmm. in, yeah. in a sense. Yeah, absolutely. There's like, uh, you know, there's pros and cons with that. Uh, and it's, you know, part of the the growing up experience of any company and of certainly any, you know, for Jeff, like any sort of CEO, leader or founder of an organization. So one of the things that I know that you worked on while you were at Twilio was uh, customer facing analytics. And that's something that I really want to kind of focus some of our conversation on today. So maybe a good place to start to kind of just set the 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 stage here is what is you know customer facing analytics and sort of how is that different than other types of analytics that people might be used to to thinking about yeah absolutely i mean i think prior to us building out our customer analytics story um which from a product standpoint we called it insights um the analytics largely was internal or you know the vast majority of it and so if you think of the traditional or classic sense of analytics, it's its business intelligence. I'm landing data in a warehouse, I'm landing data in a, in a data lake, I'm using something like a Tableau or a Looker, I'm answering lots of questions for marketing, for sales, maybe for engineering, uh, just depending on the level of sophistication or, or sort of what they need. Um, and that's it. And largely that data stays inside. Um, and with customer-facing analytics, so, so when, it stay, when I say stays inside, it's it's you know, it turns into a report. Maybe it turns into a dashboard that somebody from marketing can go and look at, but that data is not going in front of your customers. That, that data is, is siloed internally and is not going anywhere else. What we started seeing was the data that we're using to help troubleshoot and solve customer problems, specifically at the time was for our voice client, 
and the voice client was a was a WebRTC client that had distribution globally, was used in call centers. Customers would write in and they would say, "Hey, I've got this call identifier or call SID. How do we how do we figure out what's going on?" We would then take that, we would run it through our internal tooling, uh, and, turn, and you know, run it through sort of our internal analytics infrastructure, and we'd respond with, you know, you know, kind of a, a bunch of data that says like, "Hey, here's what happened." Uh, you know, halfway through the call, you got a bunch of jitter um, and that call dropped or halfway through the call, they unplugged their microphone and that's why they couldn't hear anything. Um, and that turnaround time was was laborious, uh, it was also costly. And so we came up with the idea that, you know, we should put this data in front of our customers. We should empower our customers with that data. And how do we do that? Well, at the time, a lot of that data was landing in Redshift. Um, and I used to, we used to kind of joke internally that, hey, that's where the data went to die. Um, you would see it land in there and it would never come out again because think about trying to access that data and build an application on top of that. Um, it was governed by a completely different group inside of Twilio. It was, it was in our you know data engineering team. It was treated very differently. That data was predominantly used by internal folks from finance, from marketing, from everything else. Well, then all of a sudden we come along and we're like, hey, we want to we want to expose this to our customers. And you know largely that answer is going to be no. And so, so when I start to think again, so just to kind of make sure I answer your question, the customer facing analytics is that data that you, you, you want to use to put in front of your customers, to empower them, to give them insights about how the platform that you're providing to them or the product you're providing to them is performing. So they can understand, is it doing what it's supposed to do? Am I getting the right amount of calls? Are my calls dropping? Why are my calls dropping? Um, I think a great sort of a great example and some early um, well, some early examples of what that looked like was the like button or the like counter in Facebook. That was customer-facing analytics at mm -hmm. a pretty massive scale. But it was kind of in-product analytics, but it was a very you know early sort of version of, hey, here's something that's very simple, but it's providing insight to me of how often my post was liked. Or think of the same thing that you get with LinkedIn. LinkedIn has a ton of customer-facing analytics as well. Yeah, so... You know, in this case where you were trying to essentially like empower the customers to solve some of their own problems rather than, you know, calling up customer support and essentially having them run these queries or access these dashboards and then tell them what was wrong. Imagine the SLA on that's probably not great. And it costs a lot of money just from like a, you know, paying people to do do something that someone else might be able to, uh, a customer might be able to solve that problem themselves. What is, you know, how, how is those, uh, the sort of challenge of exposing that information externally to a customer different than building those internal dashboards? Like, what are some of the challenges that you face? Just, you mentioned essentially that one, the data is kind of like siloed off and redshift and owned by a different team. But what are some of the like engineering challenges or product challenges that you had to overcome in order to build something like that? Yeah. So if I think about prior to us building our, our stack, we'll say our services, you know, the SLA for running a query to find out information about a specific call could be in minutes, um, sometimes maybe seconds. Um, and if you're going to build a customer-facing data app or customer-facing analytics, minutes or even seconds, that responsiveness is not going to work. Your customers are going to leave. They're going to say, I I'm, this, this doesn't work for me. This is not going to work. I, I can't just sit around. Like The responsiveness is, is that lag time is just going to be horrible. And so like one of the first things we had to solve is, how do we take all of this data that we're, we're collecting that we can now utilize for troubleshooting and how do we make that fast? How do we make it responsive? 
How do we put an API on top of it? How do we enable our front-end developers to not have to go try to write SQL or put SQL sort of in a middle tier or anything else like that, but have an API that they can interact with to query that data and get the responsiveness that we need uh, in order to satisfy you know something that's a data application? Because your customers, are, they're just not going to stand for it. If it's taking minutes to run something or they're asking a simple question about, hey, here's a call, Sid, tell me what happened here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and yeah. imagine there's also some real-time uh, like uh, access to the data too, where potentially internally you're okay with like, well, the the data is an hour behind what's actually happening live. But as a customer, you know, I want to be able to access stuff this stuff in real time. So there's also the the challenge of essentially like, how old is the data? I want to be able to right. access it now versus, you know, you know, thirty minute delay, sixty minute delay is maybe okay for internal people. Yeah. And so, I mean, if you imagine you're running a giant call center and your giant call center is built on top of uh, Twilio and you've got that client embedded across a hundred uh, desktops in that call center and something starts going sideways, you can't wait an hour to get the answer in terms of what's happening, right? You've got to get almost immediate access or near real-time access to that data to figure out, is it is it me or is it Twilio? Mm-hmm. Um, and that was something we had to we had to make sure that we could deliver upon. And so in order for us to do that, we could not use something like a redshift. Like that's just not going to fly. Um, we couldn't use something like Looker. We're not going to embed Looker or Tableau in, into um, you know into our console. One, it doesn't look anything like Twilio, and two, the responsiveness that responsiveness of that of that app or that embedded you know iframe is is going to be pretty horrible. So we had to start building that infrastructure from the ground up because there was really nothing else for us to utilize uh, that we'd found that was sort of commercially available or off the shelf. And so we had to stitch all of that stuff together. So where did you start with some of that, uh, like uh, building that infrastructure and, you know, what was sort of the makeup of the team when you first started this project? Yeah. So we started first with collection. And so we started to instrument all of the JavaScript clients uh, that our customers would embed in their apps to send telemetry data back to Twilio. And so we had collection points uh, essentially all over the world that would then gather that data, um, that data would land on a bus like uh, Kinesis, and then we would then send that data, at that time, was into something like S3, which eventually made its way into Redshift. And so what we had to do is we had to break into that pipeline, right? So we didn't change at the front end, so that stayed all the same, the collection, everything else like that, hit Kinesis, but then we added an additional uh, consumer of that data, and that additional consumer started going into Elasticsearch. Uh, Only problem was, we didn't have any people that had ever operated or built Elasticsearch. So long story short is, and uh, the data engineering team wasn't able to help us out. So what I ended up having to do was build more or less a kind of data or pseudo you know, data engineering team inside of my product engineering teams. That product engineering teams were running and operating the entire video, or in this case, the client infrastructure. Um, I had to pull some people off of there and say, okay, we've got to figure this out. How are we going to do it? Um, and so they came up with the idea of like, hey, let's run Elasticsearch. Uh, we had a little bake-off uh, trying to do this with Spark. Uh, that really wasn't quite ready uh, or where we needed to be. And so we figured out that uh, we can run these Elasticsearch clusters um, and we can actually start to land that data and we can start to ask questions about data to help satisfy um, debugging of some of our customer issues. That was sort of just the first part. So at that point in time, we hadn't even really thought about insights yet. And so we were doing a lot of the, the sort of upfront work to help us satisfy those inbound support questions before we even thought about building out the insights. And so, as I'd said earlier, 
once our customers started to come to us more frequently, we started seeing the cost of the and, and the overhead of answering those questions. It was like, okay, we've got to build that product. And so now I've got announced I've got only like two people running this infrastructure. We ended up hiring probably another three or four uh, plus a product manager. So now I'm probably up to six people to say, okay, we've got this data. We've got to continue to operate this, um, you know, inside of my organization and now bring it all the way out to those customer facing analytics in the form of dashboards and, and insights that we can deliver. And that took, you know, essentially a fully staffed team and a whole number of months, if not, you know, maybe a year to get that from inception all the way to delivery. Wow. What was the, uh, the, the challenge or limitation you ran into with Spark? Um, I think at the time we just, it was really hard to operate back then, right? And so I think Spark was still somewhat in its infancy. Um, it hadn't been around all that long. So we're talking probably like 2015, um, somewhere in there. And I think what they ended up finding was the Elasticsearch gave us the query ability and the responsiveness that we wanted without having to sort of spin up and run these these Spark jobs. Mm -hmm. um, we ended up bringing Spark on later on. Um, some of the other folks came in and what they would use Spark for was to sort of pre-process data and then land it into another uh, Elasticsearch index. And so when we needed to pre-process things and say like, hey, I want to have, I want to window my data by day, by hour, by week, by month, they were using Spark to do a lot of that processing and then drop that back into an Elasticsearch index. But in those early days, we found that Elasticsearch was really giving us the responsiveness we wanted. Uh, the API was pretty easy for us to use. We could write that sort of mid-layer, mid-tier layer, mid -layer uh, that would connect to Elasticsearch and would translate sort of REST API calls into those Elasticsearch queries and then give us the responsiveness that we that we wanted. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned that this took like a, you know, a multi-person engineering team, probably like a full year to sort of completely develop both the, the, the infrastructure, the data management, and then the, the, the actual UI for, you know, bringing up these dashboards and something that a customer can interact with. That's a significant investment for, for a project yeah. like this was essentially the commitment from Twilio or like the, the thought process there is they, they really believe that this was something that would bring tremendous amount of value to customers. So it was worth sort of putting that level of investment into something like this. So in the beginning, I would say we kind of went rogue and just snuck it in because we needed, we needed to better operate our systems and we needed to better operate and troubleshoot when our customers were having issues. And so I'd, I'd face similar problems back at Skype had done it a different way. Um, We'd end up burning up Postgres databases <laughs> um, in a major way just because of the amount of data that we had and we never got the responsiveness we want. And so having learned from that, it was like, okay, I have to have this, um, this, this sort of infrastructure in place in order to troubleshoot a global network. And so in the beginning, I just brought it in. I was like, I, I can't operate without this. And so we brought it in, um, you know, sort of, uh, you know, under, under the cover of darkness and said, hey, we, we're going to have these, these magical tools that we can answer questions when our customers are having problems. Then what ended up happening is the, that I started seeing Kibana dashboards or Kibana graphs landing inside of Slack channels. And those, those Slack channels were like customer support channels. And then people started asking questions of like, well, why are we taking snapshots of Kibana dashboards and sending them to support and support's just turning around and sending that off to the customer? Shouldn't we just build a, shouldn't that just be in the hands of the customers? And then that, you know, then it becomes, okay, this can vastly reduce our support overhead. This can allow our customers to better understand their usage 
of how the platform is performing for them. It created the stickiness and it gave them the confidence that once we saw, we got a few customers out there and on it, um, that they, they sort of gained confidence in the platform and the reliability that they could now expand their offerings. Um, and it also didn't hurt when Zendesk came to us and said, if you don't figure this out, we're going to leave you, which is one of our largest customers. Um, and we, we just had to figure it out. And so then it became this, this thing of like, okay, great. We've got client insights. Now let's turn that into voice insights. And then as soon as our customers started seeing that, it's like, well, why don't you have a messaging insights? Um, you know, where is, you know, where's my chat insight? So, so all the teams at some point were like, we have to build an insights product, but there was no platform for that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so, so of course they showed up in my, you know, in my organization, like, Hey, can we, you know, can we sort of like, you know, follow your lead or can we jump on your infrastructure? And, and we ended up letting one team do that. And we finally did have to tell them like, look, you, you can't, you're, you're, you're killing us. Like we're having to operate these systems at our scale and your scale. And we can't do it. So it's either you've got to, you know, go run your own cluster um, or you got to give us a bunch of people. And they chose to go run their own cluster and more or less kind of like carbon copy that infrastructure, yeah. but now under their organization. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it makes sense. So it sounds like you had some strong sort of customer signals that this was something that was like, a, uh, would actually be adopted and used. And then of course you had the additional pressure from Zendesk that uh, they were going to leave yeah. if you didn't figure this out. That was pretty helpful. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> strong makes, motivator. Easy, strong motivator to put it on your roadmap and deliver it, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, you know. So, you know, building a lot of this stuff, um, you know, uh, uh, you know, figuring out uh, uh, this stuff from scratch, essentially, and also, you know, dealing with probably significant scale, even at Twilio at that point. What are some of the lessons that you learned from like an engineering perspective with building this thing from scratch? So lesson one, I would say this stuff is hard. Um, this stuff is hard. And if it's not your core competency, it's, it's going to be even harder. Um, it also becomes hard from an organizational standpoint because you end up building this data engineering team inside of your product engineering teams. Um, and that just, at times they're, I don't know if they're, I wouldn't say they're necessarily fundamentally at odds with each other, but it's sort of different skill sets that I have to now, now bring in and sort of like, okay, how do the, how do I get these these folks to cohesively exist um, and you know deliver these these backend analytical products, but at the same time deliver put put that data in the hands of 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 customers. And so that was challenging because you know I'm going to my management and saying like, hey, I need engineers that can run Elasticsearch. It's like, but you're running voice client or you're running video. What does that have to do with WebRTC or what does that have to do with mm -hmm. communications? And it's like, well, it does because that's all the infrastructure that now powers our insights. And that insights is giving us that stickiness. And so, you know, there's there's definitely some, some you know, organizational challenges there. I think the other part is um, thinking about data products. So when you're thinking about data products, um, if I run a query and say I want to understand something that's broken down by week and I just give back the results, should I return null if that week's empty or should I do something called zero filling? Um, and so like in the case of, of Propel we do now, it's like, well, I don't want my front-end developers thinking about that. I want the API to handle all of that stuff. And so it's, again, it's sort of a different mindset that we have to now bring into an organization that wasn't necessarily designed or set up for that. Mm -hmm. And so that definitely posed some challenges. And so, you know, big lesson learned, if you're going to do this at scale, do it once and do it right and, and make a platform out of it. Um, at one point we had talked about doing that at Twilio, 
Um, but I just think the appetite wasn't necessarily there at the time to do it. Um, and we ended up having to staff these sort of mini data, mini data engineering teams inside of all of the big uh, platform, uh, product organizations, mm-hmm. you know, at, at, I would say at a tremendous expense. And so lesson learned is, is, you know, if this stuff's not core to your business, you know, either find something, somebody, some, somebody or someplace or some product that's going to do it for you or make the investment like a LinkedIn or a Facebook and, and, you know, go build it for real. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So do you think that people end up sort of building these like bespoke solutions to this? Because initially maybe they like, they either underestimate how hard this is going to be or the complexity or the early day requirements feel fairly simple. So they start out with like, okay, well, we only have a couple of requirements and maybe we don't have huge scale issues so we can do something fairly simple. And then of course the business scales, the requirements increase. And now they're kind of like always going back and manipulating. And then suddenly you have, like you said, like a 30 person team working on this thing that is not even core to your business. Yeah. So what I would say, like, let's just go two years ago. Um, so two, two and a half years ago, I'd say it starts like this. I've built my company. I'm getting a little, t- I have some customers. My customers want access to some data. I'm just going to go query a production database because what can happen? And so, you know, somebody goes and starts querying the production database. They start running sort of analytical workloads against that. And, you know, they, they spin up, they take any one of like Chart.js or something else like that. You know, they slap it into their console and, you know, you've got your sort of your stage, stage zero of customer facing analytics. And that works okay for a while. But as soon as you start to gain any sort of level of growth or traction, running analytical workloads against your transaction databases. I mean, what can possibly go wrong there? Um, next thing you know, somebody goes and runs a big query. Um, it's unconstrained and it's like, hey, I want to see, you know, this analysis from now until the beginning of time. And it just knocks over your transactional database and now your entire product is down and you're kind of in a really bad place. Once they fit, realize that, or maybe they've done this before, so they don't do that, they start setting up their pipelines. And the pipelines are great, kind of similar to what we did. I'm collecting data from a bunch of places. It's going on Kafka. It's going on Kinesis. Um, maybe I'm landing it in my warehouse and I'm doing my analytics on it. Awesome. BI is happy. Marketing is happy. Sales happy. I want to now deliver that product. I sit down and look at that. I'm like, okay, so am I going to connect to my warehouse? Okay, I'm going to connect to my warehouse. I'm going to create that sort of application service. I'm going to put an API on top of that. I've got to deal with pagination. I got to deal with API access control. I got to deal with performance. I got to, you can see it starts to grow in scope very, very fast. And oh, I've got to go hire a product manager. Oh, I got to hire this. And you start to like, oh man, this is, you know, this is increasing in complexity and it's increasing, you know, in expense and investment that I have to make. And then the third is, you know, what we're trying to solve is like, why should this not be a platform? Um, you know, why should this not exist as something where you don't have to do all of that sort of stuff, where you don't have to make that heavy lift and investment? Um, and, you know, why not come to something that is going to allow me to utilize my data engineering team for what they're good at, use my product engineering team for what they're good at, empower them with an API between the two, create this very nice contract, and then allow them to deliver what they need from an analytics standpoint and a customer-facing analytics standpoint. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, another route that I've seen take people take is like, well, I'll just do embedded Looker. I'll do embedded Tableau. Um, you know, maybe that's the better third option, right? So 
I'm going to now say, I've got it in my warehouse. I will just take that, that, that little iframe, that little constrained iframe. Doesn't look like my console, but I'm going to drop it in there and see what it does for me. And what we have customers coming to us with is, okay, this doesn't work. This does not meet. My product managers are mad. My customers are mad. I need to replace this with something else. Yeah, I faced this exact same issue uh, yeah. during my time at Google with, uh, you know, essentially people want to take shortcuts, we'll embed Data Studio into, you know, the console. And it just, you just have a, not a great experience from a customer's yeah. perspective. It doesn't feel... Doesn't feel native. Yeah, it doesn't feel <laughs> native, essentially, is the yeah. best way to describe it. Yeah. Uh, and, and you just, you know, have limitations of the platform. So given, like, you had all this experience and, and pain and suffering going through this process at, at Twilio, and then that's led you to, you know, found propel. So I think this is a good place to to kind of start to dig into the work that you're doing there. So yeah. how do you, you know, what is propel and how does it help companies kind of solve some of these problems? Yeah. So propel largely is what we wish we had when we were building insights, when we were building client insights, voice insights. And so for us, we view it as a data applications platform. So this is an API that sits on top of your data um, whether that's data exists in Snowflake, whether it exists in BigQuery, it exists in S3, it's coming to us in uh, the form of, of webhooks. It's the API on top of that data that empowers your developers to quickly and easily build customer-facing analytics into their applications. You know, obviously you saw this problem during your time at Twilio, but in order to go from that to sort of founding a company, how did you sort of validate that this idea was something that people were actually willing to pay for, you know, a solution to this problem? Because I think one of the, of course, challenges with building any like developer facing tool is like, can we actually get, you know, developers or organizations to pay for this thing versus them going off and trying to build it themselves? Yeah. So the first one was when Zendesk told us they would leave us um, and we ended up building it and delivering it. They then turned around and said, how the hell did you guys do this? We need to do this too. And so that was sort of, you know, point number one. And then um, just after my co-founder Nico left Twilio, I was actually still there. Um, he started making the rounds with other founders, other CEOs, other CTOs, pretty much calling on everybody and anybody that he could, presenting the problem statement of like, hey, how do you deliver customer-facing analytics? Do you know what customer-facing analytics are? Do you need these things? And largely what he got back, I would say, probably from everyone is, we need it. It keeps getting kicked down the road. Um, it's on our roadmap. It's been three quarters and we've never delivered it. We can't make the investment. We, we don't have the team to do it. How do we do this? How'd you do it at Twilio? And so that largely was the catalyst, uh, you know, for him to say, okay, this, this is real. This needs to be a company. We, we kind of knew that. I would say inherently from having solved this problem at, at Twilio, but getting that next level of validation through interactions through like, you know, um, Q and A with, with people that are actually facing this problem in the real world with their own companies, uh, was obviously largely validating and, you know, resonated pretty heavily with our investors as well. Um, and that, that paved the path for us to, to, to go and do it. Yeah. It feels like to me and, and feel free to correct me if I'm wrong, but it feels like this is kind of like a new category of, of product. And I would imagine like the sort of main competitor you're going up against in, in a deal is like, well, well we're going to like go build something ourselves. Um, but so it's, and it's, I, I, I agree totally. So yeah, yeah. I mean, I a hundred percent agree because 
everybody everybody in the beginning would sort of ask, okay, is your main competitor Tableau, Looker, um, you know, the embedded solutions? And my response is largely no. My main competitor is build it yourself. It's right. always the build versus buy. Uh, because I think as I start to talk through and look at what the lookers and, and the the tableaus of the world solve, I think it's it's different. It's built for a it's purpose built for a different audience and a different consumer. And what we're trying to build is is a, is a different category all on its own that is you know enabling those developer teams, those, those product engineering teams, to have ownership in that in the data that they're producing, get it out of those silos and into the hands of their customers where it's needed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I, I see it as a completely different product myself. So given that that is the case where it's, you know, a new category, are you facing, you know, an, essentially an educational challenge as well to sort of like teach the market that something like this exists? Absolutely. Um, you know, 100%. You know, our go-to-market strategy is largely, you know, a ton of content and education around the space. Um, a lot of content around, here's how to solve this problem. Here's our point of view of, of how to solve this problem and how to solve it the right way. Here is why buy is very expensive. Trust us, we've done it. We've, we've you know, had to beg for the headcount and, and beg for the budget to do these things, you know, prior. And so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's uh, I think it's called what the challenger sale uh, where you're, you're, you're out there having to do a lot of education at, at first. Um, and, you know, that's fine. I mean, I think when you're trying to build a new category, um, that takes a lot of time and effort. It's not something that just happens overnight. Um, and it's a lot of hard work to, you know, create that mind shift, um, you know, in the community of developers from, Hey, I'm just going to go build it to, Oh, this is a much better solution. This is a much easier solution. This actually frees me up to do more inside of my organization against my backlog. Uh, because now I just, I, you know, I put my data here and my data's still being governed and managed by my engineering team. They're still doing the same type of, of work they would be doing anyway, but now I can actually ship all these cool products off of it. Yeah. So it sounds like to use Propel, it's not necessarily, uh, you know, build versus buy. It's like build versus buy and maybe build a little bit. So yeah. since it's a, it's a platform and API. So can you kind of walk me through how do I go about actually getting started with Propel and integrating it into my existing infrastructure? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, obviously the first thing is you've got to have data. So I don't think there's any modern company today that doesn't have more data than they know what to do with. Um, and then we can start with the sort of first integration point that we delivered, and that was for Snowflake customers. And so Snowflake today does not have an API over the data inside of Snowflake, right? Um, you have to do a JDBC connection. You have to somehow connect to it, pull that data out. So let's start with that. So like, let's just say you're an existing organization today you're landing your most valuable data inside of Snowflake, but you want to get that into the hands of, of your customers. You would come to us. Um, you would obviously create an account. You would create a, a what we call a data source. Uh, that data source would then connect to your Snowflake. We would then bring that data into Propel. Um, so that way you can serve it fast with high concurrency and, and reliability. And then you automatically already have uh, that API on top of that. And from that API, you can start to create things like uh, metrics. You can start creating things like time series and counters. Um, you can do things like a reports API. So you get now this sort of like whole analytical toolbox uh, of sorts that allows you to interact with that GraphQL API and build that directly into uh, your console. And then if you also choose, you can also say, hey, I want to use Propel's uh, UI components. So I don't, want, I don't want to write my own time series. 
I don't want to write my own counter component. Well, you can now take our counter our, our components, embed those direct those React components directly in, and you've got all the visualization sort of handled for you. <laughs> and so it all starts with data, right? It all starts with the data. And that data, again, so I would say Snowflake was sort of first and foremost. That's what we started with. But say you're landing that data in S3 in Parquet format, we can pull that in as well. Um, say you're generating a bunch of events. Like say say you've got all your data is going into Dynamo and it's in the form of uh, these, these nice JSON events. Well, you can take something like AWS Glue. You can then transform that into Parquet, drop it in S3. We'll pick it up. Maybe you're using something like Kafka or Kinesis um, as your event bus or AWS event bridge. You can then have that fire off to uh, propel to our webhook. We can consume that and make that available and all the same APIs are there for you. <laughs> and then can you build custom connectors as well? Not yet, not yet. Um, we are pretty much like, we, we, we chose Snowflake for the ecosystem. Um, definitely was a lot of momentum around Snowflake. And so we said, okay, we're going to build the first one. Um, you know, maybe someday we'll get there uh, to where you could build your own connector, but you get so much flexibility with like the webhook. I mean, the webhooks are just firing right. off JSON. Mm -hmm. um, and so we have found a lot of our customers are understand event-driven architecture or already using things like events, can't really do anything with that data, don't want to go through the hassle of, of transforming them or doing anything else. It's like, all right, we can send it to Propel, and now we can actually build insights or analytics on top of that. Mm -hmm. And then what... If I'm using, say, the Snowflake connector, what is the latency between the data hitting my Snowflake instance to being available in Propel? So largely that's dependent upon the size of your Snowflake warehouse. And so the first time, uh, let's say you've got a billion rows sitting in your Snowflake warehouse, we're going to historically pull all that historical data into, if you so choose, uh, into Propel. And then what we're going to end up doing is we're, gonna, we're going to sync that data on a... Um, uh, a determined time that you can configure a configurable amount of time uh, that you can say, hey, I want this to sync every minute. I want it to sync every hour. I want it to sync every 24 hours. Largely, what we'll see is that first hydration of data depends on the size of the data and depends on the size of the, size of the warehouse. So that can take anywhere from minutes to hours. And then once you're starting to constantly, you know, update that data, um, it's you're talking minutes depending on the number of rows. And so like, you know, we have a customer that I think it's, you know, every hour is bringing in three to five million rows of data, and that's taking an order of minutes to actually get freshed up, get yeah. refreshed into uh, into Propel. Okay, I see. And so it's what... not like so. It's not one of these things like you would want to use for. It's it's not like a data dog, right? It's not that level of of latency. Um, you know, there is definitely there is a little bit of of delay, um, but we're not saying I'm not going to go build like my observability stack on top of this for my real time. Uh, operations of my my services. You know, this is going to be more things where, you know, there can be a slight delay because it's not it's not nece doesn't necessarily need to be real time in nature. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then, what if I've already you know built something in house? What is, you know, essentially, do, how do I go about like migrating it or you know building everything onto Propel? Is it, I'm assu I'm assuming that is a use case that you must deal with with, you know. Pro as you bring on customers that have already kind of like built some something in house. Yeah, the question's always, okay, where's your data? And if you come to me and say, hey, my data's in Snowflake, I'm actually, my services are connecting directly to Snowflake, I'm tired of looking at what my bill is, um, you know, how do I get this out of here? They could just come to us and then we would ingest that data. Um, you know, they choose which tables they want and then we bring that that data into, into Propel. And then they probably already got their chart JS components that are that are rendering that data somehow. 
we would say, okay, you don't have to run that that API layer anymore. You don't have to run that middle tier that manages that connectivity into Snowflake. You can get rid of that entire service. You can get rid of that pager duty schedule. Um, you're going to swap in our GraphQL APIs. I think they're super developer friendly. Um, you know, they've uh, they they make it very easy for you to uh, you know query that data. You can run 50 queries at once in a single response if you so choose. And I think it becomes much easier. You kind of go away from that. Um, that REST response, uh, sort of the, the you know, sort of the, the REST APIs that we see a lot of people doing, where it's like, okay, I make one request, make another request, make another request. Well, what if I have to do that, you know, 25 times? And and I think we vastly simplify, um, you know, that infrastructure, and we vastly simplify uh, the creation of of their customer facing analytics by swapping out. Mm-hmm. What has been some of the biggest like technical challenges that you've had to overcome? You know, taking these you know lessons learned from building something at Twilio to building a platform that essentially anybody can kind of like build on top of and integrate with. Let's see. We learning Kubernetes. Um, you know, sort of learning Kubernetes under fire. Um, we did not operate containers. At least when I was there, containers were sort of on their way um, at Twilio. Um, so we we run our data tier and a number of other things inside of containers. So you know that took us some time to to figure out and, and really understand. And it's one of those things that I I don't think you you ever stop learning there. Um, learning about all of the little things that you need to do from a data API perspective to make your developers' lives easier. Um, that was a lot of learning and a lot of talking to developers as they started to interact with their API. Would be like you know. This is great, but man, it would be a lot easier if you did this. Um, and then, you know, obviously always figuring out the scale of, you know, how do I run a multi-tenant infrastructure and ensure that no one customer can take out the entire cluster? Um, so a lot of those lessons were sort of hard learned or hard fought mm-hmm. for at, at Twilio where we ran, you know, massive uh, multi-tenant infrastructure. So we're able to bring those over um, and apply some of the, the same, you know, ideals and principles. Uh, but it's still, it's, it's kind of new tech for us, right? This wasn't communication tech. Um, this was us running, um, you know, these, these dis- different sort of analytical uh, data stores and, and trying to run them at scale. Mm-hmm. And then what about as a founder? You know, I know this is not your first company that you founded, but what are some of the things that have like perhaps surprised you going from, you know, working at Twilio and then now being the technical co-founder of Propel? I mean, knowing, uh, having to do everything <laughs> in a sense, right? Like, um, you know, no one day is the same, um, kind of forget, you know, being, being at Twilio for seven and a half years, I feel like I was spoiled, uh, because of the, the infrastructure and the support that we had in, in every aspect. Um, you know, I'm sure Jeff and everybody went through that obviously and, and, and put in the foundational work to ensure that that was there for, for people to be successful, but coming in, in now it's, it's, you sort of either purposefully or, um, uh, you know, somehow you have selective amnesia, you forget about everything that has to be done, you know, as, as a founder, uh, for me, I like it. I think it keeps things very interesting. Like I can go from one meeting where, you know, we're discussing, discussing a highly technical implementation of something, um, you know, or, you know, why is something not behaving the way we want to, to talking about the uh, languaging and the copy that we want to use, um, you know, and the, the first page of our website, to then hopping over to dealing with maybe a tax issue because uh, something got screwed up and I've got to deal with Gusto or, you know, our HR systems. 
I mean, I think it's it's largely those types of things of remembering like there's no one else to do it. Yep. And so you can't just go out and, and hire for it because obviously cash is a, is a finite resource and probably our scarcest resource, at least right now. So you can either let it not get done, which could hurt or harm your, your company or, or more, more importantly, one of your customers, or you just get it done and figure out a way to do it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So yeah, you don't have a choice. <laughs> yeah. I used you know? to say, uh, when I was a, a founder of a company at one point and I remember when I, I joined Google and people would, uh, you know, complain about having to be on call, you know, one week, a, a quarter or something like that. And I was like, I was on call for seven years. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cause that's yeah. basically what you're taking on when you're a founder, especially in the early days where you just don't have people to, to do everything. You're doing everything from, you know, writing the code to doing the internet copy, as you mentioned, to, you know, taking yeah. out the garbage back when we used to have offices and stuff like that. So, yeah. I mean, I would always say like, you know, I'd give it an example is like, you know, I'm going to do everything from sell the product to write the code, to put the desk together if I have to. Mm -hmm. uh, obviously now we're remote, so I don't have to put any desk together except for my own, but you know, you're, you're kind of running the gamut of anything and everything that can be done. You as a founder, probably at one point will have done it. What's the, so, uh, the makeup of the team at the moment? So we are hundred percent remote. Um, we are as far West as, uh, Los Angeles, uh, which is where one of my co-founder Nico is and far East as Berlin, whereas my other co-founder Mark. And then in between, uh, we are Colombia, Brazil, uh, Colorado, New York, and Madrid. Oh, wow. You got a lot of time zones covered there. A lot of time zones, but it, definitely one thing that's nice is the fact that, yes, I, I do carry a pager, uh, like <laughs> you said, for when you did it for seven years. Um, <laughs> but having a, t having a founder that's in Berlin uh, gives me the follow the sun model pretty well. So we split it on 12-hour chunks, <laughs> uh, which is nice. So I'm not getting paged at two in the morning, uh, which would be very reminiscent of my uh, Twilio days. So I'm, I'm uh, very thankful for that. Um, but I, I, I very much, I, I like having the remote sort of first, uh, culture that we have today. We will see how long we can make that last. Um, there's obviously a, a lot of discussion going on right now about, you know, is remote dead and is remote over. But I think at our scale today, uh, we, we can still continue to operate this way for quite some time. Fantastic. And then, you know, as we start to wrap up, is there anything else that you'd like our audience to know? Um, I think another thing to remember is customer-facing analytics is more than just dashboards. Um, everybody sort of gravitates there first because that's the first thing they think about of, of like, oh, analytics, I got to go build a dashboard. Maybe a dashboard's not the best thing to build depending on what, your type of, what type of question you're trying to satisfy. And so when I think about customer-facing analytics from the standpoint of Propel, since we are an API, we offer that flexibility to sort of satisfy the tenant that Customer facing analytics are way more than dashboards. So they could be, you know, in product analytics, it could be eight data APIs. Uh, they could be uh, things that you want to do. I want to do alerts over it. Um, I want to embed this in order to make decisions internally. I want to build, uh, you know, internal applications. Because that's an API, you get all of that flexibility. Um, and, and that was the biggest reason of why we, we ended up building it that way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's a great point. I, and it, you know, it's back to, uh, what you had started at the beginning is one of the examples of customer facing analytics was the the like button on yeah. uh, on Facebook, which you know is not a dashboard in the traditional not sense. Not a dashboard anyway. at all, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> not even close. But yeah. if you think of the engineering and everything that has to go behind that in order to 
you know, satisfy the requirements of that like button, it's a lot more than just thinking of a dashboard. It's a lot more than, Hey, I'm querying a database. It's, 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 it's a lot more than, you know, I'm just going to land this data someplace and, and stand up a couple services and, and magic it works. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Tyler, thanks so much for being here. You know, I really enjoyed, you know, reminiscing about your, your time at Google or Google, sorry, at, at uh, Twilio and the, um, uh, all the things that you built there and, and the lessons learned and how you transferred sort of that knowledge to, to propel and inspired you to create that company. It sounds like a really, really interesting platform that I'm definitely interested in, in checking out myself. Thank you so much. I really appreciate the, uh, the time and uh, getting to talk about it. And uh, it was a lot of fun and, uh, yeah, I hope more people think about, uh, think about us when they're thinking about their customer facing analytic problems or building their data applications and, and, uh, start to change that mindset away from, uh, from building and, uh, come talk to us. So thanks again. Absolutely. Thanks. Cheers. Cheers.